A threat to shut the border permanently after a confrontation involving tear gas and members of a so-called migrant caravan. The latest today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Plans for a school in southeast Texas now on hold after the discovery of scores of unmarked graves and a history of prison labor seldom discussed. Brooke Lewis of the Houston Chronicle joins us. Also, a scooter hits a car, or maybe it's the other way around. Whose insurance covers what? And are scooter companies or scooter riders on the hook? Also, old-age dementia researchers think they found a link with midlife stress. All those stories and a whole lot more when The Standard gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this November 26th. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Hope you were lucky enough to get to enjoy a longer-than-usual weekend. Now back to work. The Texas ticker on this Monday, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reporting there may be a new gunfight coming to the Texas legislature, this time over a proposal by Republican Representative Jonathan Stickland to allow what supporters call constitutional carry, which would mean, if passed, any Texan could legally carry a firearm openly or otherwise without bothering with a permit. For the record, Texans have long been able to carry rifles and shotguns without a permit, except in places where long guns are specifically prohibited. The San Antonio Express News offers up analysis of the new president of Mexico set to be sworn in on Saturday and what he might mean for us. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO as he's known there, is left of center, but he struck a nationalistic chord that has been likened to that of his counterpart in Washington. The Express News reporting that diplomats and business leaders are bracing for a potential collision between AMLO and President Trump with fallout that could hit the Texas economy more than that of any other state. Already tensions high along that border as our work week gets started. The Beaumont Enterprise among several Texas dailies going with a front page story on U.S. border agents firing tear gas against migrants after some attempted to get through fencing south of San Diego. Reports say those trying to get through are one-time members of the so-called migrant caravan from Central America who separated from the main group and are now marooned in Tijuana. Maya Averbach is there. She is a reporter covering this story for the New York Times. Maya, thanks for spending a few minutes with us on the Texas Standard. Hey, thanks for having me. As I understand it, uh, this, uh, th- this use of tear gas happened after a group of these would-be migrants pushed through a blockade of Mexican police standing between them and the line of fences. Is that correct? Uh, most of them went around the police rather than pushing through them, but they did get past the Mexican federal police who were trying to block their way. That's correct. And where were they headed exactly? They were headed to the border. I think many people who were part of the group, which is a small contingent in comparison to the overall caravan, were hoping to either get through the U.S. border and be allowed to pass or to have some sort of dialogue with U.S. authorities over what sort of solutions could be found to their immigration problems. One of the reasons I ask uh, where exactly it had been explained, at least in some reports, that some of them wanted to go through the vehicle uh, portals there at the San Ysidro uh, port of entry. Uh, Was that your understanding or was uh, or, or no? People were looking for different entry points. So first they approached the 
foot crossing, but that was closed off to them, at which point they went towards the vehicle crossing. That was also closed off, and then they went towards the train crossing. And at all those points, people got close to the um, either to the authorities or the train crossing to the border wall, at which point they were in sight of um, CBP officials on the other end. CBP, uh, Customs and Border Protection. But just to be clear, uh, you say that this is a, a, a smaller group of the total number that uh, are, are there in Tijuana. How many would you say were trying to get through the border at the, when, when the tear gas was fired? The Mexican authorities reported that there are about 500 people, and that's a pretty good estimate. The overall caravan, however, includes more than 5,000 who are still at the sports center that the municipal government has turned into a temporary shelter for them and where they've been for about the past 10 days or so. I want to understand and, something. Forgive me for interrupting, but you say 5,000. Are you saying 5,000 are at the sports center or is that the total number in the caravan? Because that's that's a number that I've heard associated with a total figure. More than 5,000 are at the sports center, and they are the total caravan, though there are other people from other caravans who are currently still arriving and could increase that number by about 1,000. So just to be clear, because there have been lots of reports from the border, uh, the Texas-Mexico border, with the razor wire that went up there, that there were still uh, 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 contingents of the migrant caravan headed up this way. Uh, Are you suggesting that for the most part, members of that caravan have, have gone into Baja California and, and up to Tijuana? Yeah, the whole first caravan voted to collectively go to Tijuana, and so that's where almost the entire group went. Obviously, some people from the original group peeled off and went in different directions, but um, and other people joined along the way. But the vast majority of the first caravan that made headlines for the past month uh, decided a couple of weeks ago to go directly to Tijuana because it was the sh- longer but safest route to the border and um, would put the members of the caravan not in as much risk as some of the other border states. And that is what they ended up doing. And so they are here waiting for solutions. Maya, just a few seconds, but CNN's among many news outlets reporting that Mexico will deport migrants who tried to rush the border. Is there any evidence that Uh, The U.S. government and Mexico are in talks about what to do in Tijuana or no? Um, I think there are various reports Um, in in regards to the deportation of those migrants. The Mexican government said yesterday that they had detained some 39 people, of which portion were Central Americans. And I think that we'll see some consequences for those individuals who are accused of disrupting the public order. They might be deported. Um, I think it's not clear or unlikely at this point that all of the people, including, you know, many families who were participating yesterday, who were just trying to get as close to the border as possible to see what they could do, what they could get, and didn't at all consider their actions to be hostile. Um, I think it's unlikely that there'll be a roundup of all of those people. Um, There's uh, obviously a a report that you might have seen from the Washington Post last weekend that said that... um, there were negotiations between U.S. and, and Mexico officials. And about with that, unle- alas, we have to cut you off. My apologies. Maya Averbach, reporter covering this story for the New York Times, will link to her latest, TexasStandard.org. Maya, thank you.
Officials with the Fort Bend Independent School District want to build a new career and technical center on what at first glance looks like an empty field near Sugarland, southwest of Houston. The school was scheduled to open this fall, but that's not going to happen. Indeed, when it'll ever happen is a big question. Not because of budget concerns or problems with construction, but because of a subterranean discovery, dozens of unmarked graves. This is a story that Brooke Lewis has been covering for the Houston Chronicle. Brooke, welcome to the Texas Standard. Hi, thanks for having me. Who are all these people buried at this site, and why did it go unmarked for so long? So the people buried at this site are former prisoners um, believed to work for something called the convict leasing system, where prisoners were contracted out to perform cheap labor across Texas. And the people buried at this site are 95 individuals who um, experts believe were a part of that same system. Prisoners were contracted out, and it was sometimes through um, private individuals. In Sugarland, it was through individuals who were former plantation owners, Ellis and Cunningham. And um, it is believed that that is where these prisoners were working on former plantation land on this site. This system was used as a way to provide money to the prison system that just didn't have any money at the time. And the system did contract out a lot of African-Americans. And some people say that this system is another form of slavery because it was implemented right after slavery ended. And it went unchecked for so long, I believe, because, um, you know, no one knew that they were there besides one community activist whose name is Reginald Moore. Reginald Moore actively um, spoke out about these possible remains on the site because there's a nearby cemetery that holds a similar history. Um, that cemetery sits very close to where the technical center that the school district is building. And then earlier this year, um, remains were found when a construction crew um, was beginning construction on site. Who actually owns this land? I assume Fort Bend ISD? Yes. So Fort Bend does own the land, um, and the school district's plan was to move the remains to the nearby Old Imperial Farm Cemetery, which sits very close to the site and holds a similar history. But when the school district went before the judge last week, the judge actually delayed the petition and did not want to make a decision on the school district's petition to move the remains yet because he felt that there needed to be more community input and he wanted more input himself about just memorialization and burial of the remains. And so um, now that decision has been delayed and he said that tentatively an agreement could be reached possibly around March. But, um, you know, that puts the school district's construction plans kind of up in the air. They, they have said that that does, has not stopped construction. But again, you know, this, the technical center is supposed to open in fall 2019, which is coming up pretty quickly. So it's, you know, everything's kind of in limbo right now. I'm struck by this one individual, the one individual who suspected that there was uh, that there were burials on this site, and no one listened to him for many years. Why not? Yes, I think, you know, Reginald Moore really was the lone voice for a long time about these individuals that were possibly buried at the site. Um, I think some people just did not believe that this was, was there. They, they did not want to believe um, the history that he was talking about because it is a brutal and um, kind of history that we just don't even really learn about in schools. And he was just a lone person who kept 
going to school board meetings, who kept talking to city council members and city officials about what was there, and he did not give up. Ultimately, you know, he realized in April of this year that as they announced the discovery of remains, that he was right all along. Brooke Lewis is a reporter for the Houston Chronicle who continues to cover this story. We'll have a link to her latest at texasstandard.org. Brooke, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. Thanks for having me. Social media editor Wells Dunbar. As we heard earlier Sunday, Border Patrol agents fired tear gas on members of the caravan of Central American refugees, including women and children, in a skirmish at the California border and lots of reactions pouring in on her Facebook page there. Mary Ann Hart Morrow says, This is a damn outrage. Never in my life have I been so ashamed. How can any human take this action, particularly toward children? Lots more reactions, David. I'll be back with more from social media later in the show. Indeed, in about 35 minutes or so, Wells Dunbar with more of the talk of Texas. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen, including a healthy diet and exercise, can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, partnering with SAP to deliver e-commerce and digital solutions designed to elevate customer engagement and revenue for mid-market companies. More at softwareispromised.com. It's Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. You know that crazy game between Texas A&M and LSU? Seven overtimes of the final of 74 to 72. Certainly one of the biggest sports stories of the weekend, but there's another that has a lot of Texans talking on this Monday, in part because of the potential follow-up. A familiar face in Texas college football will not be returning next year. Texas Tech University firing their head football coach, Cliff Kingsbury, after the Red Raiders' 35-24 loss to the Baylor Bears on Saturday. Kingsbury had been the school's head football coach for six years with 35 wins and 40 losses. Who will replace him? Well, here's where it gets interesting. Lots of talk about a possible round trip for controversial former Texas Tech coach Mike Leach. Leach has been having a relatively successful run as head coach for Washington State University. We'll keep you posted. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Dockless electric scooters have been for rent on many big city streets in Texas legally for months. Love them or hate them, they present some interesting legal questions for city officials, for police, and as KUT Austin's Jimmy Moss reports from the Texas State Capital City, insurance companies too. Electric motorized scooters are here and growing. Scooter company Lime says there have been more than a million rides on its scooters in Austin since June. It has 500 scooters on the road with plans for as many as 4,500. Bird has more than 500 scooters on the streets. Jump, a subsidiary of Uber, is the newest entrant in Austin. It has a 1,000 scooters here. All those scooters are competing for space on busy roads and walkways. And inexperienced riders mean accidents. But since we're in the early stages of the city's scooter regulations, just who's at fault in scooter accidents isn't as clear as you would think. KT host Rebecca McEnroy learned this the hard way last month. She was driving her car out of a parking garage. Driving out put my parking pass in, waved to the attendant who was sitting there, and then 
I started to drive forward. I looked to my right because it's a one-way going south. I slowed down, stopped, and then I hear this whoosh. And I see this guy fly like onto my car and then jump around and he was on a scooter. So I see like the scooter lying there. At that point, things proceeded as they would normally after a crash. Police and EMS were called. The man on the scooter was injured but declined to leave in an ambulance. In the 20 minutes they were on the scene, Austin police officers talked with Rebecca. You know, they said that they see a lot of this and they don't know what to do. They don't know if they're supposed to ticket them for riding on the sidewalk. They don't know if they are supposed to um, ticket them for not wearing helmets. They don't know what the protocol is when they are in an accident. Right now, with the stage we are in scooters being, being introduced to Austin, a lot of that's very new. That's Sergeant Michael Barger with the Austin Police Department. He says things are so new with scooters, there's a little gap with newer officers. Uh, you have the brand new officer who just came out of the academy and he may they may teach you know about the scooters in the academy so he's going to be knowledgeable then you have the guy who's been out for a year and came out just right before the scooters came out and he has no idea how to handle a scooter and and then you have officers with more experience who are you know going back and going well that's a bicycle they're they're understanding that a scooter is handled the same way as a bicycle and it's just a logical process for them This could change in the future, but right now, the state of Texas considers e-scooters the equivalent of bikes. They have two wheels, they go under 30 miles an hour, and most can ride with little training. Also, theoretically, there is less risk for injury. In medical coding now, there is a very specific code for two-wheeled motorized scooters. So it's very distinct from motorcycles, bicycles. Dr. Melinda McMichael is the interim director at the University Health Center at UT Austin. She says her clinic has been keeping tabs on scooter injuries that come through the facility since the semester started. The number of incidents has grown every month, 26 in September, 32 in October, and 22 as of November 15th, which would mean it's on pace for 44 with two more weeks to go in the month. What we normally see people for are things like knee injuries, sprained ankles, lacerations, abrasions, head injuries. But I think it's important to point out that this doesn't count the number of people that went straight to the emergency room. So my guess is the numbers are much higher than this. APD Sergeant Barger thinks the scooters help get cars off the road, but there might be more restrictions on them down the road because of those injuries. You, you have people that are getting on these scooters. They have no experience riding them. They get up to 15, 20 miles an hour. It's a dangerous mode of transportation because it's got a high center of gravity because you're standing up as you ride on it. And if you hit a, if you hit a pothole, you're going to go over the handlebars on it. But until something changes, the law is murky. Robert Rodriguez is an officer with UT's police department. He says his department has not issued citations for scooter-related offenses unless it's been particularly egregious. UTPD is trying to educate riders that they have to follow the rules of the road since scooters are vehicles, unless scooters are involved in a crash with a motorized vehicle. The way they see the scooters is almost like a pedestrian or bicyclist because they're not required by law to carry liability insurance. It becomes a civil matter at that point between the driver of the vehicle and the person riding the scooter. Scooter companies all carry liability insurance that protects the company. There is no comprehensive insurance that would cover any damage you might cause 
on a scooter. In fact, the companies don't cover the rider at all. And there's a good chance that even if you have a solid homeowner's or renter's insurance policy, you're not covered here either. None of the insurance you have currently is probably going to help you. Jason Hargraves is managing editor for insurancequotes.com. Because your homeowner's policy does carry with you for some instances for liability purposes, except when it involves a motorized vehicle. And that's exactly what a scooter is. So in the eyes of insurance companies, homeowner policy issuers, the scooter is a motor vehicle, so it's not covered in collisions with cars or SUVs like Rebecca McEnroy's. Her SUV had a large dent in the left side, and her driver's side door was hard to open because things were out of place. So she called her car insurance company. And I said I was just in this accident, and I was hit by uh, a guy on a scooter, and my car's really damaged. And they didn't really know what to do about it. They said, okay, well, we're not really sure what to file this under. Um, but we will contact him. But then days later, it took a turn that she did not see coming. She said, we have to wait for the police report because he said that you hit him. And I was taken aback because he had hit the side of my car. So really, I could not have hit him. But he, having said that I hit him, that would make it my fault. And they said then it would be on my file as hitting a pedestrian which is not a good thing to have on your record. But then Rebecca remembered something. The garage attendant said the crash would have been recorded by security cameras, so she got the video. Then I sent that to my insurance company. After she watched it, she said, "Uh, clearly he's at fault. She was still out of deductible, but no huge scar on her file. Its final classification, the guy on the scooter, was an uninsured motorist. In Austin, I'm Jimmy Moss for the Texas Standard. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas. Some of them are true. At independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig, and Book People, as well as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Alexandra Hart with a roundup of news from across the state. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA, renewal applications are down in Texas. Though the Trump administration has tried to end the program, which provides temporary relief from deportation, many young Texans remain protected for now. Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Troval has more. In fiscal year 2018, less than 19,000 Dreamers renewed their DACA protections in Texas. That's less than half of statewide renewals from last year. The number of new DACA applications also fell by more than half. Immigration attorney Jill Campbell says the Trump administration halting the program likely caused some of the drop. No new applications are being processed and renewals were on hold for a few months. So you're talking about a big chunk of time there when just no applications were permitted. It wasn't that the applicants were choosing to not file, it's that the government was prohibiting those applications. She says while the program was halted, some kids lost their work permits because they couldn't renew DACA. Some are now struggling to pay the $500 renewal fee since the program restarted. Though federal courts have recently ruled to continue DACA renewals, its future will likely be decided by the Supreme Court. 
In Houston, I'm Elizabeth Troval. In one of the wildest and certainly longest college football games of the year, Texas A&M eked out a win over Louisiana State University on Saturday. The matchup broke the record for the highest scoring game in NCAA Division I football bowl subdivision history with the Aggies beating LSU's Tigers 74-72. The Aggies clinched the win in the final seconds of the game's seventh, that's right, seventh overtime when quarterback Kellen Mond connected with receiver Kendrick Rogers for a two-point conversion. Mond looking that way. It's Rodgers! The Aggies win the game of the year in the Southeastern Conference. The game also tied another FBS record for most overtimes. Here's A&M head coach Jimbo Fisher in a press conference. I mean, seven, I didn't realize it went seven. I lost track of overtime, I ain't gonna lie. They said seven, I guess. That's what you all say it was. It was. The victory was the Aggies' first win over the Tigers since A&M joined the SEC in 2012. Texas should prepare for more and worsening natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey, according to a governmental climate change report released Friday. The report is the second installment of the National Climate Assessment, which is backed by 13 federal agencies and released every four years. It says the effects of climate change are already being felt and points to events like Hurricane Harvey, deadly wildfires in California, and other extreme weather events. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Alexandra Hart from the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from Fort Lonesome, Texas-based chain-stitch embroidery design and tailor-made custom western wear on Instagram and at ftlonesome.com. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. As we come to you on this Monday, we are in the middle of a critical period for NASA's first spacecraft built to explore the deep interior of the red planet. After a journey of some 300 million miles, the InSight robotic lander is due to touch down on Mars this afternoon in a complex ballet of parachutes unfolding wings and retro rockets. If all goes well, the InSight lander will spend about 24 months trying to get answers about Mars formation. But what of that never-ending question about life on Mars, the stuff of science fiction fantasies and earthbound fixation? Well, after five years of debate over where to target a mission for signs of life, we have a decision. Tim Gouge is postdoctoral fellow with the University of Texas at Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences, and he's been studying possible landing sites, as I understand it. Uh, Dr. Gouge, welcome to Texas Standard. Thanks for having me. All right, so we are not talking about the mission that the newscasts are going to be focusing on tonight so much. We're talking about what happens next, the Mars 2020? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a really exciting time for a Mars exploration mission landing today. Uh, new mission, the landing site just announced last week. So uh, lots of exciting exploration going on. What is the uh, what, what is the lucky site? Right. So it's a site that I've been working on for the past several years. It's called Jezero Crater. It's about a 45 kilometer diameter impact crater. Uh, that formed when a meteorite hit the surface uh, over three and a half billion years ago. And we think uh, what's most exciting about it is that it once held a lake and has a large uh, deposit that's like a river delta. So think of the Mississippi River Delta. Huh. Uh, and so sediment that's being delivered into a lake by a river flowing into the basin. Was there water on Mars? Is it assumed that there w there was water on Mars by the basis of the uh, the, the way this uh, crater is shaped or, or sediment or rock? Yeah, so we use our, our understanding of geologic processes on Earth and how they form and shape the landscape okay. to say that 
we know that over three and a half billion years ago, there was flowing liquid water on the surface. Okay. We actually know there's a lot of water on the surface of Mars now. It's just locked up as ice in large polar caps. Um, but we want to know about the transition, about how it goes from liquid water to solid ice. Okay. So it's believed, presumably, that where there's water, there might have been life or there might be life. Uh, mostly have been. Um Water, liquid water, is one of the major requirements for life as we know it. And so if there was liquid water, which we really think there was, it's a good uh, chance to go look for whether life might have evolved if the conditions were right. How do we know what we're looking for here? Because obviously, uh, you know, you're nodding your head that this is kind of the question. We presume that water is essential for life as we know it, and you've been saying that. But what might such life look like? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question, and that's sort of the question that is driving a lot of the science the rover is doing. We can use early Earth as an analog, and so that's sort of how we can think about these problems. Very early on in Earth's history, so about the same time period when life was just getting go going, we have very simple single-cell uh, organisms, and so we can look for evidence of life like that. And we look for how it's preserved in the rock record. And so uh, types of chemistry that are very indicative of past life and uh, life processes that we will be looking for both on the ground and also when we return samples, because that's one of the really exciting yeah. bits of this mission is that it's the first in a series of missions to hopefully return samples to Earth where we can subject them to any number of really detailed analytical capabilities in labs here on Earth. May I ask, why here and say not one of the poles where we know that there's frozen water, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, where the poles now where it's um, the, we have the water on the surface is very inhospitable. So we don't think it's an environment where life would be able to survive today. But if you go back over three and a half billion years to the time period when this lake was active, we think that represented a much more habitable environment. So life would likely survive there. It's a different question from whether life evolved. And so we don't think this modern surface is habitable, but we do think the ancient surface would have been. I understand that you were an advocate for this crater. Right. So you, you feel a little vindication here? Or uh, that's a great question. Um I think the way I think about it is the site is as interesting as it has always been. And so what I've tried to do is show other people the interesting science that's available at that site. So I didn't necessarily do anything to make the site more interesting. I just tried to tell the story and, and show others how interesting it is. And so it is certainly very satisfying to see that work pay off. Um, and it's very exciting. It will be exciting to explore it little professorial modesty, it sounds like to me. <laughs> Tim Gouch is a postdoctoral fellow and soon-to-be assistant professor with the University of Texas at Austin's Jackson School of Geosciences. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
Hey, it's Texas Standard Time. As scientists at UT San Antonio work to identify causes of dementia in old age, Texas Public Radio's Bonnie Petrie tells us about a possible link with increased stress in midlife. Your child needs you. Your mom needs you. Your boss needs you. And they all need you now. Middle age is the most stressful time of life for many people, and that may lead to problems later in life. New research has linked higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol in people in their 40s and 50s with poorer performance on memory and other cognitive tasks, as well as smaller brain volume. UT Health San Antonio neurologist Siddha Seishadri is a senior author on this study, and she says the brain changes they found are small. But we know that such changes at midlife predict the risk of developing dementia later in life. Seishadri says she knows stress is a fact of life particularly for those in the sandwich generation who are often caring for aging parents and young children at the same time. So while she advises reducing the overall stress in your life where you can, she also urges you to take up physical activity that helps moderate your body's hormone response to stress, and every little bit helps. Don't give up if you can't do half an hour of moderate to vigorous physical activity three times a week. Any little bit that you can do seems to help at least on the brain and now increasingly also on cardiovascular risk. She says society has a role in helping ease midlife stress as well. For instance, for us in the 40s and 50s, sandwich generation, if we had better systems in place to look after our older generation and our younger generation, ranging from daycare to respite care for people with dementia, that would reduce the stress on us. Seishadri says creating stronger support systems on an individual level as well as in the community and nationwide would have long-term benefits for everyone. It's not just to help the people who are suffering now, but to reduce the tsunami in the next generation. The study was published this fall in the medical journal Neurology. In San Antonio, I'm Bonnie Petrie. It was 1944. For Brownwood, Texas, well, war seemed to consume many waking moments and things like sports, especially football, were welcome diversions. There was only one problem, of course. All the men were gone, gone to war. Indeed, that's the title of the book by Marjorie Herrera Lewis, When the Men Were Gone, a new novel about a high school football team in Brownwood, Texas, and the woman who took on the job of coaching the team, Marjorie Herrera Lewis, welcome to the Texas Standard. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. This is a uh, fascinating story. You you have a, a history, a background as a sports writer. We should point out, and I'm wondering if you didn't hear some story along the way that inspired you to write this book. Well, that's where I found out about this by hearing it along the way. I went to the allergist, and my nurse saw that I was wearing a T-shirt that had football on it. And she told me she was a fan and all the women in her family were football fans because their great aunt had been a football coach in Texas during World War II. And the minute I heard that, I knew I was going to write the story. I think that this is one of the more fascinating aspects of this book, uh, that the, 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 the main character here, even though this is a novel, Tylene Wilson is real. She is. Uh, she would be 114 years old today. Um, she grew up loving football. It became a part of her father-daughter experience, and so I included that in the book. Um, I actually, when I found out about her, set out to write a biography, but because the story had been lost to time, I didn't want to drop 
what I knew about her. So that's why it ended up being a novel. That's that's really interesting. So tell us a little bit about why Tylene chose to coach this football team. I think that's a rather important aspect of this story. This story is actually written in first person. So I take on the persona of Tylene. And Tylene in real life, really wanted to be a mother. She and her husband, John, wanted to have children really badly, but mm-hmm. but it never happened for them. So that's how I wrapped the story. But that's part of what is the impetus for her desire to take these young men that would leave for war if they didn't have the opportunity to play football. She wanted to give them the rest of their childhood. Of course, we're talking about Brownwood, Texas, 1944. Not everyone welcomes Tylene's passion for football. Right. Not everyone does. And, you know, it's interesting because I was the first female to be assigned to the Dallas Cowboys beat in the mid 80s. Mm -hmm. And most of the experience by far was very positive. But there were a few pushbacks. And so I got to the point when I was doing my research on Tylene, if if I was finding pushback as a, a reporter, a female reporter in the 80s, what must it have been like for a female coach in the 40s? In fact, even when the pushback was difficult at that time for me, I'm glad I experienced it because it gave me more insight later, you know, all the years later to tell Tylene's story. And I did know she had pushback from the stories that I'd heard from her family. So um, it was a difficult time for her. And she was risking a lot because she was very well respected in the community already as an educator. So she was putting a lot on the line. You know, I, I wonder, it seems like there are so many parallels between Tylene and, and your own experience. As I understand it, uh, shortly after writing this book, you decided to, uh, uh, that you wanted to become a coach too, as, as I understand it. Well, that's true. I never thought about becoming a coach. It's not something I grew up wanting to do. But by doing the research about Tylene and then writing this novel, I just got really motivated to do it and try it myself. And I felt like I had something that I could offer because I had been a career, besides a career sports writer, uh, a university professor. So I've been working with young men and women of that age group for a long time. And Mm -hmm. I've been very successful, thankfully, uh, connecting with them and making a difference in their lives, I feel, from what they've told me you know, subsequently. So I felt like I had something to offer and I could work with with young men of that age group. And and I just fell in love with the idea of doing it because of Tylene. So she was my inspiration. This was uh, Texas Wesleyan you're talking about, right? Yes. Texas Wesleyan University mm-hmm. in Fort Worth. Yes. Right. right. Um, one quick question. You're not only are you a woman, obviously, but you're a Latina and there aren't many women in, who in sports writing who were Latinas uh, in the U.S., was there a reason you fell in love with the profession, and do you draw on your ethnic background at all uh, uh, when it comes well, to writing? Uh, yeah, I uh, I grew up with a mother and a father who, uh, my mother, uh, she lived in a boxcar growing up, and my father lived in a in a house that had no water, no electricity, and no floors. He slept at night on dirt floors. Mm. And what I draw from that is, that they gave me a lot of opportunities that they didn't have. And and I connected with football players because a lot of them were coming from struggling backgrounds. And even though my parents uh, went to college and my background was much better than what theirs were, what they provided for me, I could see that education, I could see that athletics can change lives. My father went on to college, the only one out of nine children, and played baseball in college. And so so sports made a difference in his life. 
And and the other thing is, it's kind of this. What's funny is when I was named the first Cowboys female Cowboys beat writer, not only was I the first female, I was the first Latina female. And then I was the first pregnant female when my <laughs> my husband and I had our oldest on the way in the 1988 season. So that was so different for everything that the NFL had seen. <laughs> <laughs> Marjorie Herrera Lewis is a longtime sports writer. She's also been a coach, and she is now a novelist, the author of the book, When the Men Were Gone. Congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Oh, it's always such a joy to talk about Tylene about this book, so thank you so much for inviting me. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The United States is threatening sanctions against Nicaragua in response to alleged electoral fraud and human rights abuses. More than 300 people have been killed since April. Hundreds of others, many of them college students, are in jail. The chaos is triggering a large-scale flight from Nicaragua. Human rights workers say at least 1,000 Nicaraguans are applying for asylum in the U.S. Lauren Madelon reports from the capital of Managua on what they're fleeing exactly. Democracy, yes. Dictatorship, no, the people chant. Since April, the scene's been replayed across Nicaragua. Unarmed, anti-government protests over corruption and repression have repeatedly been met by police violence. The international communities condemn Nicaragua, but the cycle continues. A man says he recorded this audio of police shooting into a crowd during one demonstration. The man doesn't want to be identified for fear of government retribution. Today, the death toll stands at more than 300 people. The UN and governments from Europe to the Americas blame the regime of President Daniel Ortega. Ortega's police are now hunting for dissidents, especially students who initially triggered the protest movement. One of them, 19-year-old Elsa Valle. We were intimidated every day, and it continues now. In June, Valle was giving food and medicine to students when police burst in. She says officers threatened torture and death as they drove her to a notorious jail known as El Chipote. Human rights defenders say torture is commonplace there. Valle says she was brought into a room of machine gun-toting men. She says they ordered her to admit that the students had received arms to fight the government. I could not say that because it's not true. After that interrogation, Valle says a guard threatened her. I'm going to rape you. That was just one part of her ordeal. She says she was forced to sleep naked at times. At night, she says guards clicked AK-47s outside her cell. There was a lot of psychological abuse in jail. Valle was pregnant when she was taken away. Stress took its toll. She suffered a miscarriage in jail. She was released in September without explanation. Her boyfriend was shot dead by paramilitaries days before she was arrested. Her father is still in jail. His crime? Being at a march. Terror is not confined to jail. That's the sound of a horse-drawn cart bringing people onto land that's not theirs. Thousands of people, armed with machetes, have been dispatched by Ortega's government to take over lands owned by the regime's opponents. Close to 17,000 acres of Nicaraguan farmland are under armed occupation, and you can't call the police to help you. 
Michael Healy leads Nicaragua's Union of Agricultural Producers. The whole world has seen what happened here, how, how the human rights are being violated day to day. Between farmers, ranchers, their workers and families, Healy's union represents roughly one in three Nicaraguans. He says armed squatters are just one footnote in a mosaic of state repression. We feel that we're tied up, you know, and we have to break those chains, you know. U.S. sanctions are looming, shaped in large measure by two people at opposite ends of the political spectrum. Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz and Vermont Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy. The sanctions would hurt a fragile economy that's been imploding since April, but Healy welcomes them. That's a price that Nicaraguans have to pay, you know. If we want to get rid of this regime, we have to pay a little price in Nicaraguans, you know. At rallies, President Ortega blames the crisis on the U.S. without offering evidence. He says allegations of human rights abuses are fiction and that Washington shouldn't get involved. As for Elsa Valle, the student who suffered through three months in jail, the repression hasn't ended. Elsa and her 17-year-old sister Rebecca were arrested November 13th. They were standing outside Managua's central courthouse as their father Carlos made an appearance before a Sandinista judge. After an hour, the pair was released. Both say they were hit by police officers. But Elsa Valle says she won't be intimidated. I have lost my fear after everything they have done. And she says for all those fleeing the country, many more are staying and will continue their struggle. In Managua, Nicaragua, I'm Lauren Madelon for the Texas Standard. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Joining us once again in the studio, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. I said uh, you'd be back in 35 minutes, and here you are. Here I am, as advertised. What yes, are Texans sir. talking about on this Monday? Well, more reactions to the show's top story, the tear gassing of members of the, that caravan of Central American refugees, including women and children, at the border in California yesterday, really inspiring a lot of reactions online. Outrage, understandably, among them. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard, Allison Pagliari says, this is a disaster and adds that when you don't allow people to try and enter legally, when you turn them away after what they've been through, desperate times call for desperate measures. Meanwhile, Cindy Hayes Smart says this is a bad situation, but if people want to enter the country, they're going to have to do it correctly. Immigrants are not free to write their own rules as enter and enter as they please. So many are deserving and hopefully we can find a place for them, but this is not a free-for-all. Uh, really raising some interesting questions there, David, about uh, the sort of process available uh, to these people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's uh, applying for asylum is a legal thing, protected, uh, but uh, as we saw in those dramatic videos uh, and, and photos from yesterday, uh, the pushback on those people uh, basically denied that sort of uh, opportunity to apply, uh, really creating those incredible scenes that we saw you know, yesterday. There, there's a political dimension to this, and I'm yeah. not sure how much it's been focused on elsewhere, but, uh, you know, Congress returning today. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be back in session uh, later this afternoon. Uh, and uh, they have a lot of stuff on, on, on their plate. Yeah. Two weeks, by the way, uh, to get uh, uh, to, to get a stopgap uh, funding bill passed, or else uh, the, the government won't have money to, uh, uh, to to pay for operations. This is a critical uh, juncture right now, and something that I'm thinking that the president might try to use to leverage yeah. money for and, that uh, wall. And it's interesting, been. you know, I've, I've been seeing some reaction online, like a uh, debate over the sort of optics of this 
over this and, and whether or not it sort of, uh, you know, uh, helps the president in that regard. And I think there may be a disconnect between what people are seeing with that sort of dramatic footage, uh, thinking that it sort of bolsters his cause. Maybe it doesn't as much as uh, his supporters think. So uh, I don't know. It remains to be seen and a very uh, controversial story. Another controversial topic, although I was putting things in perspective, much less uh, important uh, in people's lives, reactions to scooters, the electric yeah. scooters Absolutely. that we've been hearing about about lots of reactions pouring in people have strong feelings about those things you david peters tweets us uh that cars are the dangerous vehicles in the city and sort of turning it around there meanwhile jennifer ramos on our facebook page uh, adds that the chargers those people that pick mm-hmm. them up charge them and yep. drop them off placing yep. these in the streets at bus stops on sidewalks they need to become familiar with the texas accessibility code as they're making things difficult for people with disabilities and limiting their mobility and that's the biggest issue i've heard from a lot of people too mm. uh you know it, it I rode a scooter once. Full disclaimer. Did you? It was pretty. You mean? You mean it's a regular commuting device? Yeah, I took it up to go get a smoothie from the place. Oh, so you did street. it? Yeah, you did yeah. it once. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is not your. No, no, not on the regular. It was fun, yeah. but yeah, you know, it's like I, I tried to stay in the bike lane. I didn't try to go on the sidewalk, and especially here in like a campus area, you, you just got to be careful how you do these yeah, things. No, no matter how you slice it. Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast. Well, we're going to be back here tomorrow, and we hope you can join us on behalf of Mr. Dunbar here and the rest of the Texas Standard crew. I'm David Brown wishing you a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Public Radio International.